You're listening to Bodyful, a podcast that explores the wonder and complexities of living in this human form and how we can engage in an ongoing practice of bodyfulness to become more fully at home in ourselves and in the interconnected web of Gaia, the living earth. I'm your host, Valerie Martin, and I'm the founder of the Gaia Center for Embodied Healing, where we support folks in their growth and healing work with somatic psychotherapy and embodiment practices. We hear all the time about the importance of being mindful, and it's time to invite our bodies to the party. Welcome to Bodyful. Hello and welcome back to Bodyful. I am so excited to share today's guest with you. Um, I realized as I am recording the intro for the previous episode and this one back to back, I had not recognized that both conversations relate to eating disorders and our relationship with food, but from very different angles. Um, also, There's a topic that is not the bulk of this conversation today, but does come up that I always feel a little nervous the first time it comes up in a new context. Um, I haven't discussed veganism on this podcast yet, and it's something that I'm still like, I'm on my hashtag personal journey with because years ago, when I first uh, became an ethical vegan and had been in years of eating disorder recovery already by that point, uh, it became very clear to me, not only from my own past misunderstanding and judgment of like assuming that all veganism must be disordered, um, but also genuinely like seeing how other people in the field treat it. Um, that it became a very difficult thing for me to navigate in terms of how separate do I need to keep these worlds? How, quote, out can I be of my vegan closet? And it's something that as much as I I do have sort of separate spaces where I talk just to that audience in particular because I know there are things that um, – don't always perfectly translate or no one in perhaps in this space wants to hear me talk about veganism or animal rights for a solid hour. Um, So it is nice to have a dedicated space for that. But I, over time, I became more comfortable with the approach of allowing the two to overlap and not trying to hide it and trying to actually be a voice of, of, reason and revolution when it comes to veganism and the in the eating disorder treatment world and recovery world. And I actually had a conversation on a previous podcast that I had done. I'm not doing any more, but though you can still find the episodes on that website, uh, valtheveganTherapist.com. If you go to the blog, you can find the podcast. And I'll also put the link to this particular episode in today's show notes with uh, Jen Friedman, who reached out to me because she was working on a book on veganism and eating disorders. And she is also a person in recovery, also an ethical vegan, has a really interesting story and has also put in a ton of work as she's been um, getting her clinical license 
to writing this book and just announced the other day that she got a deal with a major publisher for this book. So I'm so um, inspired by Jen and can't wait to read the book when it comes out. I'm sure we'll have her guest on this podcast as well. Just I invite you to explore your own sort of feelings that come up when the topic of veganism is brought up in this episode or in that future episode. Um, Hopefully, or my hope is that your experience will be that we discuss it in ways that are not at all pushy, preachy, judgy, any of that. Um, But for today's guest and I, it was just a really important part of both of our journeys into becoming more fully embodied and connected with the wider world. Um, But even if you're like, yeah, I have no interest in veganism, I still think there's a lot you can get out of this conversation because like I said, it's, it's really only a Uh, a component of the conversation there's so much that we get into and Zephyr um, today's guest is just one of those people that so so backing up they also sent me an email similar to what Jen did a couple years ago and we're just like hey I think we have similar overlapping interests and I would love to connect with you and I'm working on a book and I was like oh I'm so busy like sure I'll do a 20 minute zoom call to like offer encouragement and just see what they're up to and then you know not 10 minutes into the conversation as Zephyr was describing their um, framework of food system alienation alienation my jaw is just like dropped and I'm like um you have to come on my podcast and talk about this so they are just one of those people who are so incredibly smart I just want to like you know, sit by them with a notebook and just like take notes on everything (laughs) that they're doing because they have so much to offer. I know that their book is also going to be incredible. And um, again, a a kind of a different twist on the conversation of recovery and veganism and food systems and eco-psychology. This was such a joy to have this conversation and I hope that you will feel that from us. Uh, Let me tell you a little bit more about Zephyr. Zephyr has been many things, a freelance painter, international solo hitchhiker, burlesque performer, dissident, student, emergency caseworker for survivors of domestic violence, citizenship test interpreter, vagrant teacher, and more. They have lived in moldy squats on sidewalks, at occupations, out of a backpack in the woods, and as far from their Chesapeake Bay region birthplace as AO. Tarawa, I know I pronounced that wrong, New Zealand. Zephyr now lives in a log cabin with friends of varied species in the high desert wilderness on occupied Apache Chiricahua land. It is a place that they aspire to transform into a multi-species sanctuary of sorts for individuals whose bodies have been harmed by human food systems. Zephyr is finishing their Master's of Science in Sustainable Food Systems, writing a book that examines food and body struggles from a critical food system studies perspective, and is spending the first half of 2022 doing an intensive mentored study in regenerative architecture with a focus on the psychological and embodied impacts of existing eating disorder treatment center designs. Wow, right? Okay, I'm still going. (laughs) Their upcoming projects will reimagine and radically redesign care for people who are struggling with food and embodiment. 
Much of Zephyr's research and writing has centered on the weaponization of food systems by systems of power, the framework they have been creating of food system alienation, and the utilization and reclamation of food systems in liberatory struggles. Zephyr believes in taking action to facilitate autonomy for everyone, regardless of class, race, gender, species, and all other assigned categories. Whew, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but if you're not inspired by reading that, <laughs> I'm just like, let me just run into the street and and just start taking action immediately is what this makes me want to do. Let me go and and get some seeds for my garden. I mean, let's be real. We've I've decided that gardening is not for me, though I have a friend who also studied sustainable um food systems and uh, she's going to be working on my garden because I would rather spend my time doing stuff like this. So best of both worlds, right? <laughs> All right, let's get into the conversation with Zephyr Scott. Okay, we are here with Zephyr Scott and as I was just saying to Zephyr before pressing record, I feel like for this conversation, frankly, I am so uneducated that I'm just like <laughs> along for the ride and excited yeah. to ask questions and learn all about uh, what we're going to get into. So thank you for being here. Oh my gosh. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm like just so like in awe of like the work that you do and of your focuses so it's a it's a big honor to to be here yeah so let's take a moment to drop in so for folks listening as always uh feel free to join us and just in whatever context that you're in remaining safe with eyes open or eyes closed just taking a moment to become more fully present so starting with becoming aware of the breath, not needing to do anything to change it. And becoming aware of the surface supporting you, whether that's a chair, floor, something else. Noticing if there are any places in the body that are communicating anything or any places you might be gripping that you could invite to release a little bit. And as you become more fully present, in this human animal body in this moment. And just notice what you're bringing into the space today. What's on your heart? What's on your mind? And let's take one more full breath. And coming back. Okay, so Zephyr, I would love to hear a little bit about uh, what you noticed in that check-in. Um, 
I noticed that I've been holding a lot of tension in my upper back just because of classes and being hyper-focused on, on homework and on these like lofty goals and such. And so it's, it's really appreciated to have, you know, a moment of space to, to check in with, with my body. So mm -hmm. thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so uh, easy for that to fall down the list of uh, what feels important to do. And with all of the things you have going on, it was interesting. I was checking in with a friend yesterday and both of us were having the experience of once we kind of eased the pressure we were putting on ourselves, that's when we were able to like accomplish more. And it's like the irony, <laughs> but it feels so true. So I hope that in sort of taking even small moments to ease the pressure that helps you have the capacity to do all the incredible things you're working on. I mean, it's absolutely true. Um, and I think that, you know, we, we can especially see an example of that with like nature connection. Like there's been a lot of research, you know, about just taking like a walk in the woods, um, like lowering your heart rate, like making you, um, creating that space for then subsequent productivity. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I've been in sort of a headspace where, you know, I, I'm, I think that we are sort of having this, this rebound, like pendulum swing of almost like vilifying productivity at all and ambition. And I'm like, maybe not, maybe we don't have to vilify those if we do them more sustainably and um, with, le with less of that intense pressure. So yes, very interesting. Well, one thing that I wanted to ask you before we jump into all of these topics, um, I would love to hear about your name because I had the sense from seeing like your email address that maybe Zephyr is the name that you selected for yourself. Is that true? Yes, actually it, um, it is. And it's funny because, you know, now even like my mother calls me Zephyr, yeah. like my family does. Um, and it's been that way for quite a long time. Um, it actually um, came about after I had moved back to the U.S. from Aotearoa. I was living in um, Aotearoa or New Zealand for a while. And um, following a friend in the U.S.'s overdose, um, mm. I, I relapsed into mm. like my own struggles around food and my body. Um, I think largely out of a need to, to escape to find a way out because I felt so disconnected from my friends and loved ones back in the States. Mm. And so that's how it manifested. And then when I came back and was really just like determined to build up a stronger, um, more resilient being, um, it also came with sort of a total paradigm shift, name change, um, and sort of like reconceptualizing the, 
the future that I wanted to build. Mm. Yeah, that's a really powerful story. And I, I was like, I, I know Zephyr is a word that means something. So I looked it up and of course, you know, there was whatever the dictionary said, but is there a certain definition that you really lean into for that or not necessarily? Um, the West wind, you know, yeah. that, that very generic definition, um, mm -hmm. which really resonates with me having kind of found a lot of liberation in sort of going with the flow in like following gut impulses, breaking social scripts, um, being very free and loose and explorative, but also gentle and nurturing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So cool. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I'm really, I've not ever changed my own name, but I am in theory such a proponent of like how, how silly that we should spend our whole lives being called something that we didn't choose and that like even the people who named us didn't know us yet usually so um I think that is so powerful to claim that for yourself and and it's such a beautiful name so I just wanted to touch on that oh thank you <laughs> yeah so as we kind of dive into our conversation around um social systems around food and speciesism and embodiment. Um, I wanted to just read this passage that you sent because I think it's a really good introduction. Um, and there, there are a lot of big words here. So everyone listening, just like really prepare to focus for about 90 seconds. <laughs> if you miss anything, no worries, because we're going to get into all of these, but there's just so much density of, um, your sort of mission in this that I really wanted to share it. And then we'll sort of break it down and get into the individual components of it. So you wrote our bodies, social systems, food systems, and ecosystems are connected at every micro and macro level. The well-being of the planet is central to the well-being of all of its inhabitants and our embodied practices also have an outward impact on our social systems and habitats. Although some valuable insights resulted from the scientific revolution and the enlightenment, these transitions also provided foundations for the conceptual and material division between humanity and the natural world, which has been central to shaping and justifying colonization, extractive industrial practices, and systems of oppression and alienation. For the majority of our species history, indigenous communities around the world have viewed themselves as part of their ecosystems and lived sustainably, but the European imperialist reductionist reconceptualization of reality <laughs> imposed a violent patriarchal construction of the human and of human supremacy. When chemistry became the science underlying agriculture, it also led to a reliance on the domination and extraction instead of synergies and ecological relationships to produce food. Domination and extraction have come to characterize our food systems, social systems, and relationships with ecosystems. In order to actualize decolonization, ecological regeneration, and social justice, there needs to be a radical shared reconceptualization of humanity's relationship to our environments and to the other beings who inhabit them. 
Such efforts require the recognition that we are all connected and that nobody is supreme. The categories that are used to define, divide, and justify harm to, uh, to the other should be recognized as arbitrary and violent. So mic drop there. <laughs> like I said, so many pieces, but we will break that down. Um, before I ask any specific questions, anything just even in hearing your own words um, reflected, anything that really stands out to you or that you're feeling passionate about in this moment? Well, first off, my reaction is, gosh, I sure can get jargony. Um, and so <laughs> I'm glad that we're going to be too. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm glad that we're going to be breaking things down. Um, because, yeah, I mean, essentially what that can be broken down into is that, you know, we've built civilizations on disconnection on enforced disconnection from our bodies, from place, from, you know, other species, from like each other. Mm -hmm. um, and that really um, what my work is focused on is how to tap into food systems, social systems, learning, um, and like interpersonal relationships in order to bridge that rift and establish connection because it's like I don't think that you know we can really repair our relationships with our bodies um, without doing so repair our relationships with food without doing so mm -hmm. absolutely and clearly uh, as we will be getting into there are a lot of problems um, resulting from our disconnection from our bodies um, and in our relationship with food. Um, the perhaps the most obvious one being eating disorders of all kinds, but arguably a lot of other mental health challenges as well, resulting from that profound disconnection. Um, you mentioned, you know, just being passionate about the lessons that we can learn from the wilderness about that synergistic relationship. Um, existing between all, you know, kind of in the interbeing among all bodies. And I wonder if there's any, any particular, like for me, it's trees that really exemplify that so beautifully, but I know that it's everywhere. So I just wonder if there's any, any particular lessons from nature um, or the wilderness that you love that represent that synergistic um, relationship. Oh my gosh, so many things. I mean, for one thing, I mean, definitely trees, but also additionally, like mycorrhizal networks, like yeah. those interconnected relationships of sharing nutrients with each other, of like totally countering this uh, like ideological perspective that nature is all about competition. Mm -hmm. um, because the reality is that it's so much more about synergy and so much more about sharing and collaboration. So it's like, even though you have like this food chain and you have predators and prey and um, all of these relationships, um, ultimately when you take a step back and look at the bigger picture, until you have these kinds of forms of like industrialization and domination that seem to be the result of centralized power systems that are predominantly human, 
everything outside of that serves a purpose in maintaining a flow. Um, and so I think that that's something that we really need to pay attention to in how we do treat our interactions with others, you know, how we treat our interactions with um, people who we may or may not come into contact with in our lives, um, how we treat plants, how we treat other animals, um, considering how those kinds of relationships um, and sharing and cooperation work in, in ecosystems. And I also think a lot about um, rhizomal growth. Mm -hmm. So if you think of ginger root, um, if you cut off part of it, it continues to grow. Mm. You know, this idea that like different entities can thrive, um, you know, even, even when parts of them are cut off because of sort of a, a decentralized rootedness in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Um, and I'm thinking about just the, you know, the food piece of this is so fascinating to me because I've, um, in what I've studied around eco-psychology, it's like that relationship between, you know, humans and more than human animals and other aspects of the natural world. Um, like that, that part is, I feel like spoken about a lot, but then the food system element, I'm not used to hearing about that quite as much, quite as explicitly as you're talking about it. So, um, I don't know if you want to just jump right into your your framework around food system alienation, uh, but I would love to talk about like where that idea came from and why you feel it's so important. Um, absolutely, and that's a great question. Um, so having been through multiple. Um, you know, higher levels of care, eating disorder institutions, um, and realizing that there was something that never really gelled in so many of those conventional approaches for me. Um, and that a lot of the assumptions that were made about food and about people's bodies um, didn't always reflect the reality and also totally overlooked the experiences of so many of my friends and loved ones who maybe didn't have um, the same kind of body that is usually perceived as having an eating disorder, but who did really struggle with food and with their bodies. And so those observations that the perceptions and labels surrounding eating disorders really left out and were a disservice to so many people um, caused me to kind of shift my perspective and think about the systemic causes of people's disconnect and like struggles and suffering around food and their bodies. And so when I started taking a look at food systems, I realized that historically the relationships between people's bodies and food and systems of power um, 
have told stories about how food systems have impacted our bodies and our relationships with food, you know, ever since like we started producing grain ever since like the dawn of agriculture. Um, and, you know, we, we go into treatment centers where they tell us, oh, food is just medicine. Food is like this sort of reductionist thing that is totally devoid of any sort of like moral component that's totally devoid of any sort of complexity or nuance you know mm -hmm. it's just food but I I very much disagree with that idea because food tells stories mm -hmm. and so our through our relationship with food you know to some extent we get to decide what kinds of stories we get to be a part of and what stories we want to be a part of and create and tell. Granted, even that's complicated because everyone has different levels of access, you know, everyone has different levels of privilege. Um, and so it is a complicated and power ridden dialogue. Um, but I think that for me at least, and of course, you know, everybody's story is different. Recognizing that nuance and that element of storytelling um, and endless complexity when it comes to food and embodiment was really essential to finding my own sense and direction of body liberation. Mm, yeah, wow. And you mentioned in that, you know, the idea, uh, this sort of myth um, that that food is sort of, it's just this like stuff that you're supposed to consume um, because that's what, you know, you need to, to keep your body healthy um, and that there is no, no narrative, no story, I mean, no um, morality. And, and I think part of what's frustrating to me um, is the sort of confusion between, or I um, can't think of the word I'm looking for, but, but people basically are saying like, well, there's no more, you know, we need to take the morality out of food. Like you're not a bad if you eat an Oreo or you eat, have pie or whatever, right? And that's the only context in which we're bringing up the con bringing up the idea of morality is like the no good foods, bad foods thing. Um, so like, yeah, I don't think that you know there needs to be any morality in that sense of like judging the healthiness sort of factor of the food, but to take morality out of the equation at all in terms of like the, you know, what is the actual food system look like? Are the, you know, the, the perhaps animals or humans involved in getting this food from where it starts to my grocery store, to my plate, um, there is morality within that. And it's, and it's hard because it's like a lot of people with, um, eating disorders, it's like, well, they're already stressed enough about food. Now I'm going to make, ask them to think about this. Um, but again, it's that very disconnect from, and just seeing food as this very external sort of object that I'm supposed to consume because I'm told that's what I'm supposed to do rather than feeling deeply connected because the earth is my larger body. And I am, you know, eating these 
things that grow from the earth to keep my body. I mean, it's pretty magical if you think about it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And like, I think that there is, and um, someone very dear to me was actually just talking about this recently. Um, what if with, you know, all the things that we purchase on a day-to-day basis or, you know, all the things that we consume, we made a conscious effort to really connect with the processes that went into that Mm. and to think about how and feel how we are interacting with those things and let ourselves feel, you know, however that manifests. And also acknowledge that like the world is really hard (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. and that, you know, none of us are perfect. Like it's, it's impossible to be a perfect vegan because there's animal exploitation in everything. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's sort of a, a simple label to, to slap onto things, but the reality is that we can only do the best that we can do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I like how you mentioned that this, um, an aspect of eating disorders is that they could be a very rational response to these, these forces of power and oppression and all of that within our food systems. Um, that, you know, no, most people aren't sitting there consciously thinking of that, but there's so many forces that impact us that, you know, we're not just consciously aware of. I mean, all of the larger systemic, um, forces at play are impacting us and we don't necessarily, I mean, unless we are truly confronted with it on a day-to-day basis, for instance, like systemic racism, um, we're not always thinking about or consciously aware of those. And yet, of course, they can be impacting us. Absolutely. And I mean, that's that's a big underlying reason for this like framework of food system alienation that, you know, that I've been building and I'm writing a book about. Um, it, it, because like there are all of these cultivated, enforced systemic factors that encourage us to have these very like fraught a very difficult relationships with food and you know even just like the the way that the economy is set up um the gdp is benefited by people suffering more because that creates more industry and that Mm -hmm. creates more exchange of money so you know even eating disorder treatment centers aren't independent of that um, and so ultimately, in a lot of ways, there often isn't incentive to truly help people outside of, you know, individual people who want to do that. Sure. Yeah. Um, but at a structural level, there are all of these incentives in place to keep people hurting. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. because, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really, yeah, it's especially as a mental health provider, it is like, That is a hard thing to grapple with. It's true, obviously. And like you said, I mean, at the individual level, of course, we, we can imagine and hope that most people like do have like, um, you know, compassionate motivation. Um, but 
yeah, at a, at a larger level, it's like people will joke about like, oh, well, you know, the world is really crazy right now, but you know, I'll never be out of a job. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> because our systems, you know, our communities are, don't support us in the ways that they probably really should. Um, and so now there's this whole industry that exists to try to make up for that fact. Absolutely. And, and what I end up, you know, as you already know, it's like eating disorders have some of the highest rates of relapse and mortality of any, um, you know, diagnosed psychiatric illness. Um, And I think that a lot of that is because, you know, we'll go to a treatment center and then get help in sort of this isolated context um, and then get sent back out into the same conditions that produced those responses in the first place. And so it just becomes a revolving door instead of having any sort of way to address this sort of disconnect. And so I think that one of the big tools for combating that is just like relationality is connection is you know building authentic relationships with the outside world um in a very like multi-species in a very um in a very broad capacity yeah yeah as you were saying that too I was thinking about you know um yeah, we kind of talked about sort of the dark systemic underbelly of like treatment and mental health um, industry, but also the the flip side of that and like where I think the genuine kind of altruism and care comes in is that for some of these individuals, whether they're in a treatment center or in a therapist's office, that interaction, that relationship may be the first or one of the first times that person has ever had secure relational, you know, attachment or connection, um, in their life. So, you know, I think that, that that's why like, absolutely there is a place for these to exist. Um, because that's just the unfortunate reality of the hand that many people are dealt, but, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, the ways that we are currently approaching that, you know, as, as someone who's been through some treatment and worked in treatment. Um, and then, you know, at that point, I, I was still sort of, um, I don't know, buying into the cultural sort of rationale around, um, that veganism must be an inherently disordered way of eating. Um, even though I could conceptualize vegetarianism, I'm like, that makes sense to me, but there's so much that's, you know, on purpose, not shared with us about how, um, factory farming systems work that I had no idea that there were any actual problems with say dairy and eggs and all of that. Um, you know, and I'm very aware that people listening to this, uh, may not be in a place where they're even willing to consider that. And that's totally fine. But just speaking from my own experience, you know, I, I, I regret very much that I had that assumption. Um, and that even here in Tennessee, the handful of people that I remember coming in and really trying to advocate for themselves as to why they didn't want to consume things like dairy, 
Um, and, you know, I was just not even willing to hear that. And so it wasn't even registering for me at that time. Um, but it's, it's so frustrating now because, um, on the other side of that, having become vegan and feeling like I have to hide that from other eating disorder professionals, or they're going to think that I'm, you know, unhealthy or something. It's just very frustrating. So I'm so glad that there are people like you, like Jen Friedman, who's writing her book um, on veganism and eating disorders who are working to bridge that gap. And I would love to hear about the, the mentorship that you're doing now around regenerative architecture and, and treatment center design. I'm just so fascinated by that. Oh, yes. Um, and first off, just thank you so much for, for speaking to that, because I know that for me, um, when I actually became vegan, um, counter to all of the doctor's advice and, mm. you know, much to my, my parents' fear and concern and worry, um, it was really the first time where I felt connected to my values in how I was inhabiting my body and how I was relating to food. And so that provided me with a major source of motivation to inhabit the world according to the world that I want to live in, which, mm. you know, isn't one where animals are, are being harmed. <laughs> like, I, I, I can't. I can't hurt a cow or a fish or like I, I cry when people kill bugs in front of me. So how am I supposed to to participate in in something that I couldn't directly participate in? But Sefer, it's the food chain. We're at the top of it. I mean, really, though, like what would be your sort of compassionate um, response to that argument of like, that's just the way the world is. Like, that's just where we are on the food chain is what it is. It's how it's always been. Why fight it? Well, I think I would ask people to consider other instances where someone might say that and like other instances where um, someone might say that's just the way things are. That's just the way things always have been. Um, and what a violent statement that can be um, because it can be applied to so many different injustices um, in the world you know because there's a lot of, of harshness brutality oppression um, all of that throughout you know our history throughout the history of the planet but we are lucky enough to be able to choose what things we want to engage in and what we don't want to engage in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I often, you know, like you said, um, of why would I participate in a system that I couldn't directly participate in, in, in terms of like, if I wouldn't feel comfortable, like literally being the one to <laughs> wield this ax or whatever, um, then I don't want to pay someone else to do it and package it up nice and, you know, whatever for me at the store, um, that even if I know that somebody else is doing that, if it's against my value system, I don't have to participate. It's like, I I'll give the example of like, well, do you litter? And most people are like, 
no, why? No, I don't litter. Like, well, other people do. So like, I might as well, right? It's just another piece. There's already a lot out there. Well, I just, no, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't believe in that, even if plenty of other people are doing it. So yeah, it's, um, it is a choice and, and, and for a number of reasons. And I always want to give the caveat, especially when we're talking about eating disorders that, um, I, I get that everyone's, everyone's brain and body, you know, is unique. And there may be people who just feel like they cannot restrict, um, certain things that they are used to eating, um, and not get very obsessive about it or or unhealthy with it. So I want to honor that, that, you know, it's perhaps not the choice for everyone in recovery. Um, but for people like you and, and me, and I would say many others, um, I would agree with you that, that, that eating in this way and sort of, you know, the eating is just sort of a byproduct of the, the, um, the, the values and the larger kind of lifestyle choice that, that helps me feel even more connected to my human animal body and all of the other beings, which is so special. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think that you really illustrated the nuance of that so beautifully. And realize didn't even answer your other question. Oh, about, yes. I was um, going to get back to that. Yes. <laughs> mentored study um, this semester. So I'm simultaneously finishing up a, a master's degree in sustainable food systems, um, heading to start a PhD in sustainability education. And um, I'm also doing this semester an intensive mentored study in regenerative and ecological like architecture and design and specifically that's focused on at least the the class I'm taking now is on the psychology of space and so I have these sort of additional projects outside of like the the normal class structure um, that I've designed in collaboration with the instructor who's like an incredible person who's been an architect for the past 60 years. Um, And a big reason why I'm doing this program is because I don't think that we can really study things in isolation, especially things as complex as food and embodiment, um, and really get a good understanding on how to best approach them and how to best approach body liberation or, you know, such other um, deeply complicated systemic things. And so in addition to looking at food systems, I wanted to start building an understanding of our interactions with the human built world Mm -hmm. um, and on how place and space impact us. And a lot of that came from noticing differences in how I've felt in, let's say, an inpatient treatment facility that's like a really clinical hospital type setting as a teenager, um, which feels really oppressive, which really taps into a lot of um, elements of boredom and learned helplessness and, um, you know, doesn't really seem like an environment geared towards Mm self-actualization versus how I feel when I'm like 
running around outside in the woods or, mm-hmm. um, you know, even I've spent a good bit of time like hitchhiking around the country and um, connecting with people in ways that facilitates a sense of like rupture and deviation from social scripts. And so looking at how our environments and the places we inhabit um, impact us is really important because we spend the majority of our lives as humans indoors. because of the way that things are set up. So looking at things like biophilic design, which is like design that is specifically um, geared towards tapping into our innate or biological inclinations towards the natural world um, and relationship with the natural world um, adds a really important dimension to the work Mm. that I'm doing. And so like where, where I live now is kind of a, in a log cabin with some friends um, out in the wilderness. But one of the things that we want to do is create space where people who have struggled with food or embodiment or substances um, can go to connect with the ecosystem, feel free, build a loving and um, connected relationship with food. Um, And so what that will look like down the road is still very up in the air um, and is still sort of like an emergent process, you know, which means it's, there's no specific direction. We want to let things kind of unfold, but have some of the the goals and values in mind. Um, So yeah, this, this semester, Um, And this mentored study is really um, creating the foundations for that, that broader work. Oh, I can't wait to see what you, you create. Um, And I love that, that uh, phrase biophilic design. I feel like that's kind of um, my general aesthetic, like in my, I'm in my home office (laughs) right now, but my, my office office that I recently went from one room to furnishing a full suite and decorating a full suite of rooms. Um, I would say it's largely biophilic, like most of the decor somehow brings in the natural world. Um, because that's just, yeah, I feel like because we're indoors so much, um, that even if it's not the same as actually being in our arguably natural environment, um, having elements of that. I I mean, I'm sure that there's research that supports just having either plants around or even pictures of plants and, you know, Mm -hmm. landscape scenes, um, (laughs) and all of that can actually really impact our, our being when we're indoors. Um, and the other thing I was thinking as you were talking was, um, so the treatment center where I used to work it, which they actually no longer have eating disorder treatment. Um, but it was kind of this ironic, like on one hand, it was on this, you know, spread out on this beautiful, large property of a couple thousand acres, um, and lots of natural space. We have had adventure therapy and, and all of that kind of stuff. And, um, say what you will about equine therapy and whether the horses are consenting to that. But, um, 
but you know, really there was that element, I think of biophilic, um, design and accessibility of the natural world, as opposed to a highly clinical setting, which was great. However, we also shared that land with a working cattle ranch. <laughs> so, um, I remember <laughs> driving past these cows, um, in the pastures before I was vegan and still feeling that like, <laughs> and eventually that was a part of what my transition was. It was like, I can drive by these cows now and like feel very sad, but also feel connected with them. Um, instead of like, oh, I can't look at you because I feel too bad because <laughs> I'm participating in that. So just really interesting. And then it also got me thinking about um, this whole notion of, you know, wilderness programs and, and how I'm sure that some people have really benefited from that. I'm sure a lot of it depends on how it's executed and who's running it. Um, but you know, it's like kind of connected with that unfortunate troubled teen industry as well. So it's like the, the spirit of that I really love. And I think that could be executed well, you know, by people who have really done the, the legwork like you're doing to have a setting that is truly, uh, healing and, and to offer that in that kind of space and place. Um, but yeah, I don't know if you know much about like the wilderness program industry. I don't know a lot, but it's just interesting. I know a bit. And I think it's really fascinating, has like a lot of potential benefits. Mm -hmm. And I haven't really seen that being used so much, um, for eating disorder treatment. Right. No. And I, and I'm really curious about how that might play out. But I also want to note that it's like we we have designed like human built environments for safety and comfort. And so, you know, while some part of me is just like, yeah, I just want to run around in the woods um, <laughs> and like sure. be totally free and wild and stuff. Um, that also is so far removed from so many people's realities yes. that like it can provide a sense of danger and discomfort that can also be a really complicating factor for people so using the built environment in ways that maximize like the benefits of really feeling connected to the natural world and to our ecosystems but also being like a nurturing and um, beneficial and safe place for people. Um, I think that there's a lot of opportunity in that. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And that's so true of the, because um, not only is the indoors in, in many situations safer, um, certainly more comfortable. So we, we do have to take that into account. And like, I, I will totally admit, I love being in my house. So, I mean, it'll snow and I'm just like, I'm just going to stay in here for a few days and I can look <laughs> out my window. And I'm very fortunate that I look out to just a giant hill covered in trees. Um, and so weirdly I get kind of the best of both worlds, but yeah, that is so true. And I love how, like you said, that gives it the opportunity to use the built environment. Um, but in a way that, that you still get that benefit. Totally. Mm. And like, I think, you know, that that also kind of speaks to something that I think is really lacking in these conversations. Um, and in any given um, sort of institution 
additional treatment modalities or education modalities or medical realms, which is that everybody's story is different. Um, and, you know, everyone should have the opportunity to speak their truth and, you know, figure out what avenues and what things work best for them. Um, and to really feel a sense of autonomy and exploration. Because like, I know that, you know, for me, I had so many experiences talking to professionals who were like, oh, well, you have this diagnosis. So this means X, Y, Z. And I'm like, no, that doesn't sound right to me. Um, that's very much not my experience. Yeah. And they'd be like, but, you know, you have this diagnosis, so this must be true. I'm like, no. <laughs> and, you know, and if I said that, they'd be like, no, like, I get that you want to feel like you're different than people, but you're not. Like, but wait, everybody's different. I don't think I'm like special. I think that uh, everyone's yeah. just you know, we've got culture operates at every micro and macro level. You know, we don't all have the same shared conversations, experiences, influences. Mm -hmm. And so what really ended up helping me was so dramatically different from anything that I could have imagined growing up. Um, and it's sort of like a magical story a little bit. I don't know if you want to. I would love the... to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> so a number of years ago, I was living a pretty like normal life. Um, I was working for a nonprofit in the DC area. And um, I was coming home from DC one day and I met someone who, or I saw someone who was like busking, had like a beautiful singing voice, was sitting outside at the train station. And so I went to go catch my train. I'd, I'd given them some money. Um, and then I felt really strongly compelled to go back outside and talk to that person. Hmm. And so I was like, this is kind of crazy, but I'm just going to go back and do it. Miss my train, whatever. <laughs> and we connected super hard. Um, it's just this wonderful person with an adorable pup that they had rescued after like doing disaster relief stuff in West Virginia um, who had washed up. And we stayed in touch. And about a year later, I had just gotten back from Colombia and was having an existential crisis about the agro-industrial complex <laughs> after um, being in rural Colombia and seeing how small villages had been impacted by Monsanto coming in and giving farmers free seeds and like totally destroying any semblance of food sovereignty. Um, so anyway, I was very sad. Um, and then I heard from this person um, who said, hey, I'm in Florida. Do you want to hang out? I'm like, well, stranger I met once. Um, yeah, I'll go. I left the next day, went and drove down to Florida, <laughs> um, 12 hours. Wow. And I was just so awestruck that someone could live with nothing but a backpack and a dog and travel totally by faith, just hitchhiking around the country. Um, and be so kind and so compassionate and so giving to others. Um, like the most generous, beautiful souled individual on the planet. Um, and it made me realize that I wasn't confined to the reality that has been prescribed. Mm. And that was such a big turning point for me. And so 
ultimately we ended up hitchhiking together, traveling together. They taught me a lot about the road and about, you know, how to live in a way that was really connected and really aligned with my values and not with what I was told I should be doing. Um, and the really crazy part happens when we, we were hitchhiking together and had dinner with my mom one night and visited her. And after a bit of conversation um, where they were talking about their family history, we ended up finding out that our great-grandfathers opened up a chocolate factory together in Melbourne, Australia. What? which is like the oh, most nuts like my god <laughs> and so the big lesson for me from like being on the road and from just like letting things happen letting things be emergent letting um going with my gut is that there's shit I don't understand and <laughs> there's so much magic that can happen when you know we when we stop paying attention to what we think we should be doing and really do what feels right. Wow. Yeah. I'm just letting that land. Um, that's so powerful. And just, I was like tearing up hearing you describe like how just we're allowed to question everything and like, yeah, it's change is slow and systems are deeply ingrained. And there's a lot that we can get really feel very um, hopeless about because of that, because of how, how far we are from maybe the world that we envision. And yet there's so much choice that we have. It's not just like, ah, well, you know, those systems aren't changing. So fuck it. I'll just, I'll just sort of like live the way that this society wants me to live. Like we have so much choice. And I feel like I personally have only just like touched, like dipped a toe in that sort of like go against the script kind of thing. Um, but it's a start, you know, like with the first time I, I went to even discovered an eco village when I was doing a, a workshop with the, the work that reconnects maybe four or five years ago. And I was just like, oh, this exists. Like I just had no idea what existed in the world. And so that's so powerful to, to have had that, that lived experience. And gosh, like I can only imagine just how, how much you grew and learned and experienced in that time that you were just willing to step completely off of the path that was sort of written for you. I mean, I think that, you know, I, I, I spent so much of my time growing up um, feeling really sad and, you know, being a depressed teenager and like trying to numb out, find a way out, you know, through like restricting food. Um, and so it's like, I wasn't, you know, I obviously wasn't afraid of dying. I was afraid of things being the way that they were. Oh, um, yeah. And so learning that something else was possible was not really scary in that context. It was like this incredible opportunity. And I think it's, it's important for us to ask ourselves, like, what things are we afraid of? 
um, you know, what is the world that we want to live in? How can we even just use our day-to-day -day actions to really inhabit that mm -hmm. um, as much as possible? Because, you know, there are limitations, you know, I'm not gonna just sure, say we like have any loans to pay and <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's amazing how much like friendship and connection and like love for other people um, can really do. And one of the things that I've learned from traveling um, and, you know, in that, in that world, it's like, there's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of hardship. There's a lot of overdoses and suicides and violence, but in those kinds of nomadic capacities of moving about the world um, that seek as much as possible to avoid a lot of the consumption and extractivism of contemporary civilization um, and historical civilization as well. Um, there is a lot of freedom and a lot of care and a lot of really authentic love for others. Um, and I think that a major lesson as well is that we don't need to be as afraid of other people as we're taught to be. Like we don't need to be as afraid mm -hmm. in general as like we're led to believe we need to be. Like I don't need to be afraid of food. <laughs> like I don't need to be afraid of like any random stranger. Um, yeah. And I think that of course, you know, there is danger, there is risk, yeah. but approaching the world in a way that is trusting, that is full of excitement and wonder and curiosity and um, like a, a perception of best intentions is such a way to also make people want to be better. <laughs> mm. Yeah. You know, it, it kind of feels like the Mr. Rogers approach. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because, you know, I, I, what I love about him so much, especially after watching um, the documentary a handful of years ago, is like he was not in La La Land. He was not in some like mythical, like everything is great all the time. Like he was talking about really hard stuff, um, but also also seeing the good, also questioning that sort of like, like, do we need to like mistrust each other just because we're different and all of that? And I will give the caveat too that um, people who have experienced um, violence, you know, traumatic violent situations, like, you know, don't expect yourself to just then immediately be feel ready to like move through the world and trust everyone. Like it's that impacts totally. your body and your nervous system in a very real way. And it takes both, you know, ideally access to the uh, sort of appropriate context and, and support for healing and time to get back to that. But in general, um, yeah, I think like even folks who have been fortunate enough to not experience that are still trained to fear others, especially others who are different. Totally, totally. And like the thing is, um, and this is actually something I've, I've talked 
talked about with some of my friends who've had sort of similar modalities in life um, is like, I've, you know, I, I've lived in situations where there's been domestic violence, where homes that I've lived in have been like attacked by white supremacists, you know, where um, I've had guns pointed at me by riot cops, like, so, and yet some of the worst harm that I've experienced and some of the greatest trauma has been from, you know, institutions and things that I'm meant to trust. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it really could have gone either way for me. Like on the one hand, it's easy to let that translate into a sense of perpetual fear. And I don't blame anyone for whom that is the case. But I think that for me, like that would have just made me entirely like lose hope and shut down. And it ended up, yeah. I guess sort of continually having that attitude of like, I'm just going to try and live according to the world that I want to live in, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, has been what's like kept me going and sort of been a very motivating factor, you know, Mm -hmm. because it's like, I don't want anyone to have to go through harm and trauma and suffering. So it's Mm -hmm. like, how do we get in the way of that? Hmm. Well, I, I've just so um, appreciated this conversation and cannot wait to, uh, to read your book that you're working on and see what you do. Um, I, I want to ask one last very kind of selfish question, though I think other people will benefit from it too. Um, because, you know, just at a very like day-to-day pragmatic level, when I'm thinking of food systems, like obviously for myself, um, I, I don't eat animal products, but, um, I, I've all, I always wondered about the question of organic and like how, how significant is that in terms of like supporting sustainable food systems and food systems that are more sort of morally sound? Like, is it really important to kind of, for people who have the ability and and sort of privilege and resources to spend more on the organic food? Is it not really that important in the large scheme of things? Um, I, that is a really good question um, because it's all super complicated. Um, Mm -hmm. On the one hand, there is a lot that is so much better about organic practices for soil health, for, you know, all these different things. There are also really big exploitative corporations that are now like getting certified organic. And so it's like, it's super hard because I think that as much as possible, if, you know, we are good consumers or whatever, like the best sort of standard practices are like, okay, as like low impact, seasonal, local, organic, non-GMO is sort of a general good guiding principle um but you know at at the end of the day it's like who we are as consumers really influences like how we exist within that paradigm and so I think even thinking outside of that is valuable 
-hmm. recognizing the complexity of things, recognizing that none of us are going to be perfect. Like, I mean, I'm a big fan of like dumpster diving for food, (laughs) like just getting stuff that places are throwing out. Um, Like I used to um, dumpster a whole bunch and then like set up sort of like a, a free store outside of like the little like low-income neighborhood that I lived in in Tucson Mm. um so that neighbors could come by and just like take free food um and you know also learning about things like foraging like growing your own food are so valuable Mm. and so thinking about ways that we in our given realities can do more good um, is I think a, a really strong approach to take because depending on where you are, who you are, what things are available, um, there it's inevitable that you are going to do some bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but trying to find ways to give back, to share, to make things better and brighter in in the ways that you can um, is just a nice way to think about things and a nice like way to inform practice. Cool. Okay. Thank you for that. And it also made, as you were talking, it made me think about literally just earlier this morning um, in a group that's about like frugality, someone shared this app that I haven't downloaded it yet, but I had clicked on the the website and it's called, um, too good to go. So I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but it's an app where you can, I'm, I'm sure they're not in all cities, but I think it's, um, pretty broad at this point and you can get connected with, um, local stores who are like have food surplus that they they're going to have to throw out. So it's like win-win of decreasing food waste and um getting some inexpensive groceries. So there's it's neat when technology can be a part of the solution with things like that or like the misfits um food delivery um that gives sort of like the less attractive produce that like grocery <laughs> stores aren't wanting to sell. So pretty cool. I'll have to check it out and download and see what they're doing here in Nashville. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Tell the people where they can find you online and connect with you. And so that we can make sure that we all know when your book is coming out too. <laughs> so right now, and thank you so much. Um, I'm working on building a website, which is probably going to be delayed because there's just so much homework and sure. stuff going on. Um, but you can find me on Instagram. Um, and I'm so delighted and excited to connect with people in that way. Um, and my Instagram is anthroprism. So A-N-T-H-R-O-P-R-I-S-M. Cool. Um, and I'm, I'm still figuring out the whole becoming less technology averse thing, Ooh, yes. um, which is why I'm like, um, cause on the one hand, like, I don't have a smartphone. I do all of my internet stuff from my death, like my laptop. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that is intentional because I think that it creates more space in my head for connecting to things in the real world and like, mm-hmm. um, but at the same time, 
you know, it, working on having more of a virtual presence is something that I'm cultivating because yeah. of the ability to connect and have um, more of an impact. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So thank you again so much. This has been such a great conversation and uh, hope to stay connected. Oh, same here. Um, it's really such an honor and such a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you feel moved to share it with someone you think would love it, that would mean so much to me. For show notes, as well as a transcription of this and previous episodes, head over to www.gaiacenter.co. That's G-A-I-A center.co. You can follow us on Instagram at the Gaia Center and follow me at Val K. Martin, V-A-L-K-A-Y Martin. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter. Look for the link on our website where we'll share about groups and events we're offering locally in Nashville, as well as tips and resources from our therapists that we hope will be valuable and relevant wherever you may be listening from. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.